So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me uh, tell you a story. Babe Ruth, uh, the great home run hitter for the New York Yankees, was, um, was at bat. And during this particular at bat, he uh, was called out on strikes by the umpire, Babe Pinelli. And uh, the entire stadium just kind of was in stunned silence that day. And Babe Ruth looked at the umpire and said, you know, there are 40,000 people that believe that last pitch was a ball. And uh, Pinelli looked back at Babe Ruth and said, maybe so, uh, but my opinion is the only one that matters. Now, we live in a world uh, full of opinions, don't we? When you think about it, I mean, you can just get onto Facebook, you can, you can open up TikTok, uh, go to a podcast or talk radio or just cable news, and there are no shortages of opinions out there. And I think it really begs the question, whose opinion really counts? In a world where there's just millions and millions and millions of different perspectives and opinions, whose authority really matters in all of that? And I I find it fascinating because, you know, you'll find two experts on a particular subject And those two experts will have completely different opinions about that topic, whatever it is. So it's kind of like you think about the Ukrainian war. You know, our our government is sending billions and billions of dollars uh, to support the Ukrainians in this war. They they, seem like they send billions every single week. And uh, there are a lot of people that say we really shouldn't be doing that. And... uh, There are a lot of people that say we should be uninvolved. We shouldn't be uh, participating in any way there. So so who has the correct opinion on that? Who do you listen to when it comes comes to that? How about about this issue? Uh, When you think about global warming, I think the question is this, is global warming really a threat uh, to life on earth? I think that's a question. And uh, I think there's some disagreement over that question. And then when you, when you start thinking about, you know, if you answer that question, yes, then how do you go about solving that issue? Well, there's a lot of disagreement over that. And you have great minds, great experts on both sides of the issue there. This is probably the biggest example that I, I could give you today. It's probably the most important. But um, who's the greatest of all time in basketball? You know, who's the GOAT? Is it MJ or is it LeBron? I mean, this is a huge issue. And I think anybody, you know, any, any logical thinker will know that MJ is the GOAT. I mean, he just, he just is. So I think I dated myself just then. So, uh, but these are really big issues. So, so let's just make it personal to you. Who do you listen to? Who is your authority? What, what are you building your life on? What authority are you looking to? You know, many of our troubles occur because we're building our lives on unreliable authorities. And every single day it's happening. You see people on the question of authority will will look to culture and they will say about culture, well, everybody else is doing it, so I might as well do it as well. Or if they're not looking to culture, they're, they're looking to tradition and they'll say, well, we've always done it this way. Or maybe they just look to reason. Well, we made this choice because it seemed logical. Or, or some people even look to emotion. 
we, we, did, we followed this course because it felt right. Now, the problem with these sources of authority is the fact that they're really flawed. They've been corrupted by the fall. When you think about culture and reason, emotion and tradition, they've really been broken by the curse and by the fall. And so what we need is we need a perfect standard to build our lives on. You know, we need, a, we, we need a, an authority that can stand the test of time, if you will. In fact, we need an authority that will just outlast time itself. We, we need to base our lives on an authority that will always lead us in the right direction. An authority that's faithful and true and right. And I wanna to submit to you it, that that authority exists and the only authority that's worthy of your life being built on it is the authority of the word of God. And that's what I want us to talk about uh, this morning. You know, we're in this series called The Lion Roars and, and uh, you know, 2000 years ago, uh, there were people really wrestling with this very same question. You know, who do we listen to? Whose authority really matters? Who, who or what do we build our life on? They were wrestling with the very same question. And so we're gonna look at a passage of scripture where we really see the revelation of God's authority through the person of Jesus. And then we see the demonstration of his authority uh, as, as the son of God through, through his word. And so we're gonna read Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 28. And I'm gonna ask if you're willing and able, would you, would you stand just out of respect for the reading of God's word today? And so Mark tells us this in verse 21, he says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was an, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his spirit, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So Jesus and his new band of disciples, they, they go into this seaport city, Capernaum. And, um, you know, you can, you can go to Capernaum today. In fact, the synagogue that Jesus walked into uh, is... The, at least some of the foundation is, is still there today, which is kind of surreal that you can stand uh, in the very same place that Jesus, uh, that Jesus stood in. And so, uh, but, but Jesus and his disciples, they, they go into Capernaum and uh, synagogue was very much a, a, a part of uh, Jewish community life. I mean, it was very much like church for us. So they would attend every Sabbath. They would, they would, participate in the prayers that were prayed. They would hear the scriptures that were being read. Uh, there were songs that they would sing and uh, there was a teaching. And it was very common for a visiting rabbi 
uh, from out of town who was kind of moving through to, you know, to be asked to deliver the message in the synagogue uh, that week. And that's exactly what happened. So Jesus enters into the synagogue in Capernaum and we're really not sure what he taught. We're not sure what the topic of his sermon was. We know that from Luke's gospel, when Jesus visited Nazareth, that, that Jesus spoke from the Isaiah scroll, chapter 61, which is one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament that really points to the Messiah. And, uh, and so Jesus spoke from Isaiah 61. But on this day, we really don't know what he was teaching on. It would have been amazing to hear him teach. And so uh, the reason why is because um, really, regardless of what he was teaching on, it was quite a sermon because he got everybody's attention. There is no doubt about it. In fact, Mark comments about this in verse 22. Let me just show it to you. Mark says this, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, let's make a couple of observations here. The first and biggest one I think that jumps out is the people were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. They were in awe, they were blown away. And it's because of the authority with which he spoke. So they were just completely mesmerized by him. They were, they were just brought in and, and I, think it, I think it really suggests that it wasn't just the content of his teaching, which was amazing, um, but it was also the manner in which Jesus taught. So I think both things are in play there. So that's the first thing we notice just from Mark's description of this. But secondly, what we notice is that the normal teachers in the synagogue weren't very good. They were weak. And so Mark is not very complimentary of them because he says this, he says, Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So he sets up a contrast between Jesus and their normal teachers. And so what Mark is saying is their normal teachers were, were dead and dry. They were just lifeless. And people would just, you know, be just stone cold because there's just no impact. There's no life in whatever it is they, they taught or however they taught. It's like one seminary professor that I heard say, you know, surely the preacher's greatest sin is to, is to put people to sleep with the greatest story ever told. And, uh, and sadly that happened in Jesus' day and, and, it, and it happens even today. And so, so it, really, it really does. So, so what Mark's really trying to highlight out of this passage is the authority of Jesus' teaching, the authority of his word. And then he spoke like no one else they had ever heard speak. And so Mark is talking about the fact that Jesus was authoritative, not authoritarian. Because there's really a difference between someone who's authoritative and someone authoritarian. Somebody that's authoritarian is kind of strict, demanding, dictatorial, bossy, however you want to, you know, basically you all need to do this because I said so kind of a thing. I mean, that's authoritarian. And uh, usually somebody who's authoritarian isn't, isn't, very, isn't liked very much, for sure. But what Mark is saying is that Jesus was authoritative, which means that, he's, that he was genuine, that he really spoke from the heart, that he, he spoke what is true. And people knew that instantly. And he was very compelling. In fact, the word uh, authority really comes from the same root word, from the word that we get the word author from. So when you think about author and you think about authority, uh, you, you think about an author as somebody who 
develops original content. So maybe that's getting at the difference between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes were interpreting the Torah to the people. They were commenting on the Torah. Jesus wrote the Torah. That's the difference. So the living word of God is communicating the written word of God to God's people. And I think that is the difference. He's not merely commenting on somebody else's information. He is, he is communicating his life-giving information. And the result is people, it just lands on people in awe and wonder. That, you know, as Dustin mentioned a little bit earlier, they're just refreshed. Like there's life in this. There is, there is the spirit in this. And what we see is when the word of God is proclaimed, when the word of God goes out, stuff begins to happen. Like stuff really begins to happen. Let me show it to you, verse 23, because you see really a demonstration of the authority of the word of God. So, so Mark tells us this, and immediately, so Jesus is teaching, and immediately there was, a, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit who cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, when it describes that man having an unclean spirit, what that means is he's possessed by a demon or demons. He is literally possessed. He has opened up his life to demonic, satanic influence. And so, and so he is, this demon or demons are reacting to the word of God being, being pro proclaimed in their midst. And so, and so this demon interrupts the service and begins asking Jesus a couple of questions and then, and then makes a comment. And so, and so what's fascinating about that is Mark gives us the detail that this man was a part of their synagogue. And so really you want to think about, you know, this just for a minute. Um, Alistair Begg's a pastor and uh, he, he said about this passage, he said, we really do have a couple of options with this demon-possessed man. Uh, he was a part of that synagogue. He was a regular attender of that synagogue. One option could be that he attended the synagogue every single week and was completely unmoved and unfazed by everything that he heard. So he would come week in and week out and he'd hear the songs that were sung. He would hear the, the prayers that were prayed. He would, he would hear the scriptures that were read. He would hear the teaching and he would walk out of the doors completely unchanged, unmoved by everything that he heard. That's certainly an option. Now, I hope no one can come in here as an unbeliever and, uh, you know, just kind of sit through the service and just let it just wash over them and just walk out completely unfazed and unchanged. I hope nothing that I ever say is offensive, but I do hope that the gospel offends us and challenges us and moves us to grow in Christ-likeness. I hope that, why? Because it's, it's not a word from man, it's a word from God. And I think, I think that's, that's certainly one possibility that this, this person was exposed to the regular teaching and reading of the word of God and they, and, and it was, they were just unfazed. So, so that's option one. I think the other option would be that, that this man did this in synagogue every single week. And uh, that's a definite possibility that he interrupted every service and the scribes and Pharisees just didn't know what to do with him. You know, like, what do you do in that scenario? 
Um, the kids probably loved it because there was never a dull moment in the synagogue. It's like so unpredictable. What fireworks are we going to see today? You know, um, and so there's a lot going on. And I think this is where we begin to see the lion roar right in front of our eyes. Let me, let me show it to you in verse 25. Notice the response of Jesus to this demon-possessed man. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the un unclean spirit convulsed him, crying out with a loud voice, and then, and then came, came out of him. Now, Jesus, Jesus commands the demon to come out of him. The lion roars and the demon moves. And I think a lot of times we think that there's this, you know, there, there's this war between good and evil, between Satan and Jesus, and they're just kind of, you know, duking it out, and they're kind of just equals, you know what I mean? They're just equally strong. And that's really a misperception of the battle. Um, Jesus just speaks, and the demons obey him. That's a pretty good advantage in a battle, wouldn't you say? And that's what we see is the, really the power of the word of God, that the demonic realm must do what Jesus says. They must obey him. So it's not this duality, you know, two equal beings duking it out. It's like King Jesus reigns over all and there's not even, not even a close second. And I think what Jesus wants us to see or what Mark wants to see is the coming of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom comes in power. And the kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus. And when that happens, stuff really begins to happen. You know, the earth trembles and, and the demonic realm shakes. That's what happens. You know, just kind of on a side note here, you know, the first eight chapters of Mark, it, it flows pretty fast. And uh, really, when you think about the coming of the kingdom, there, there's a lot of confusion when you read through Mark. There's a lot of confusion over Jesus' identity. Like a lot of people are confused over who he is. Um, like the disciples kind of struggle trying to figure out who Jesus is. Uh, the, the Pharisees certainly are struggling over who he is. Um, the crowds are struggling. Are, you know, is he, is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? I mean, who, I mean, who is this guy? And so in those first eight chapters, people are really questioning the identity of Jesus. There's only one group that's not questioning the identity of Jesus. You know who that group is? It's the demonic realm. They know exactly who he is. It's crystal clear to, to them. And, and that's, that is exactly what we see. Now notice verse 27. And so the, you know, the demon comes out of him. This man is set free from, from this demon possession. And notice what happens. They were all amazed. And they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they and they obey him. And so there's, a, there's an absolute buzz in the room as this man has been delivered, as this man has been absolutely set free. So, so here's really the question, church, as we kind of walk through this. What would happen if you built your life on the word of God? What would happen if the word of God was your daily priority? I'll tell you what would happen. It would change your life. It would heal your hurts. It would forgive your sins. It would fill you with a God confidence. You would see anxiety begin to drain out of your life. You would begin to experience increasing freedom in your life just because 
you look to the word of God as your number one authority. That's exactly what would happen. And that's exactly what is happening in the life of this man who had been released from, you know, at the command of Jesus. And I think what this passage shows us is what happens when the word of God is proclaimed. When the word of God goes out, it does certain things. And I think from this passage, we see that it does at least two things. Number one, the word confronts. When the word of God goes out and it is proclaimed, it is shared, it is read, whatever way you get the word out, the word of God confronts. I mean, just think about what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the very moment that he begins to teach, the very moment he begins to speak, the word of God rouses the demonic realm. And, and the demons just can't sit there. They, they, they just can't sit still and watch the word of God go out. They just can't. They have to fight it. They have to resist it. They have to stop it. They have to silence it. Whatever they, whatever they can do at their disposal. And, and that's exactly what they try to do. They create a wrestling match in the heart of this man and probably in the heart of every person that heard Jesus speak that day. Am I going to yield to the word of God or am I going to yield to the power of darkness in, in life. And so when God's word is proclaimed and Jesus is lifted up and the spirit of God is on the move, what happens is the word of God confronts us one-on-one. It comes right towards us and it confronts our prejudices and it confronts our biases and it confronts our bad attitudes and it confronts our unholy habits and it confronts you know, our values, and it comes after our idols. That's what it does. And this all occurs in the delivery of God's word. You see this in Hebrews 4.12. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, for the word of God is living and active. So, so what that means is that, that the word of God has life to it. Like, like the scripture is living, it is active. This book is alive and it has an impact on us. As we, as we open it up and read it and understand it. And then he goes on to say, it's sharper than, than any two-edged sword. So, so really what the writer of Hebrews is saying there is the word of God is surgical. It's precise. It cuts right to the heart. It cuts down. It cuts through all the excuses. It cuts through all the defenses. It just cuts right down through to the soul and spirit. Joints and marrow, it says, and it discerns our thoughts, intentions, and our motives. And so when the word of God is delivered to God's people, it, it does surgery on us. And it's going after the cancers of sin and selfishness and unbelief. And you know it. You know it when it's happening. And I know it too. When the word of God is doing its work on you, you begin to, it's like God puts his finger on your heart. You know, it's like he's prodding you. He, he convicts you. He, he challenges you. Now he, he, He's a perfect gentleman. The the spirit of God is, he's so gentle with us. He never condemns us. But he just, but he just begins to prod us a little bit. Because, because really the purpose of his confronting us is to set us free. And to get us to just take ownership of our stuff. Our sinful stuff. And, And he wants to give us what we need to repent. And uh, when the word of God is doing that, that's, 
That's when the word is confronting us. And sometimes it happens during a sermon. You know what I mean? Like you're listening to a sermon, you're listening to a Bible teacher, or you're listening to a podcast or something, and, 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 and you just start tuning it out. Because, because Jesus is speaking to you, because the spirit is dealing with you, and you're just, you're kind of in another zone. And people will come up to me after the service, and they'll say, Scott, you were talking right to me. You know, and, and I'm like, I promise I'm not reading your email. I, I promise that. Um, that's just the spirit of God. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. And people will say, well, you know, God showed me so much through your message. And I'll say, well, what did he show you? And they'll say, well, you know, God showed me this and God showed me that. And you know what? I never said any of that. I never said, I never mentioned any of that. You know what that is? That is the spirit of God at work using his word it's just how it happens and so the word of God is living and active it pierces us deep down soul and spirit joints and marrow all the way convicting and confronting there's there are numerous examples of this in scripture you know our women's bible study this spring studied Nehemiah and I, I love the story of Nehemiah Nehemiah 8 uh, the people of Israel had returned from Babylon they're in the city of Jerusalem the walls have been rebuilt which is a monumental task and so Ezra's gathered all the people all the people are you know assembling together and he stands on this platform and he starts he just starts reading the word of God and he just start he doesn't stop and uh he's reading all day and some of you thought I preached too long you know what I mean and um and he uh yeah he he reads all day and the spirit of God just begins to move and the people begin to weep because what they know is they know that what's true of the word is not true of them. They're not living. And the spirit of God is confronting them in their sin and in their rebellion because it's his heart, you know, to lead us uh, to grow and to change. I, I think about Peter's Pentecost sermon in, in Acts chapter two. I, I, I think about that, you know, he preaches, preaches the gospel for the very first time and you know, Luke records, you know, an observation that as a result of Peter's preaching, the people were cut to the heart, it says. So you have that imagery of surgery. The word of God goes out and it cuts people to the heart to the point where many of them said, what must I do to be saved? And uh, they commit their lives to Jesus that very day. And so, so that's, that's what the word of God does. It, it confronts us. Now, let me, let me just kind of back up a step here and, and just, you know, really remind you. The enemy just doesn't sit back and let this happen. The enemy is real. And the last thing he wants is you obeying the word of God. That's the last thing he wants. So he's not just going to sit back and watch this happen and drink iced tea and sit under an umbrella and just think everything's cool. He is, he is going to push back. And, and you notice the pattern of his pushback. And you see it expressed through the man by the demon. It's the same pushback that we get. Okay, look, look with me at verse 24. Look what the demon asked Jesus right in front of everybody. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, you know what the translation of that is? Leave us alone. Leave us home. We're, we're perfectly fine right where we are. You have no business messing with us. Just leave us alone. That's what he's saying. And, uh, 
I, I think that happens in our lives. I think the Spirit of God's dealing with us. The Spirit of God is confronting us, convicting us, and challenging us. And what do we say? I'm comfortable where I am, Jesus. Just leave me alone. I just want to stay right where I am. I don't, I don't want to grow. I, I don't want to be confronted with this. Just, just leave me alone. And we just put shields up to keep the Spirit of God at bay. And, uh, and that's what's happening here. Notice the second question that the demon asked Jesus, have you come to destroy us? You see that? Have you come to destroy us? The demon assumes the worst um, of Jesus and rightly so, his, his day's coming. But I think a lot of times, and this reminds me of, of Genesis three, we assume the worst of Jesus as well. We think automatically God doesn't have my best interest in, in heart. He's just trying to limit me. He's just trying to hold me, he, you know, hold me back. He doesn't want what's best for me. He's not good. So I can't trust him. You see, behind every sin is a lie. And we believe the lie first and then the sin comes second. And, and the biggest lie that we believe is God is not good and he's not looking out for what's best for us. And... Uh, and it reminds me of Genesis 3 where, you know, God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat all the trees in the garden, just this one tree, don't touch it. And then, and then Satan came in and tempted them and said, basically said, God's holding out on you. Um, he, he's, he's got something good he doesn't want you to have. And uh, the serpent, you know, really convinced them to take advantage and to move ahead and grab what they think was good for them. And uh, that was them questioning the goodness of God. And then the last thing he says, the demon says to Jesus, I know who you are, you're the, you're the Holy One of God. Now, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, you know, the, this demon has really good theology. This demon knows exactly who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He's got great theology. He's got great head knowledge. The problem is it's not heart, heart knowledge. James tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus, but they don't trust him and they don't obey him. And so right theology doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus Christ by his grace is what saves you. It's not head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. And so, and so that's what we see right as the word of God confronts. But the word of God doesn't just confront us. It confronts us for a reason. It wants to transform us. The word of God wants to change us. And I, I like how Winston Churchill says it. He says it like this. He says, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. And I think he's got a great insight there. And I think it's a common experience for you and for me. God's convicting us. God's challenging us. God's confronting us with something. And we think to ourselves, you know, I would love to have an ice cream cone right now from Mrs. Curl. I think I'll just go get that right now. And, and the enemy is the master of distractions. You know, God's speaking and God's moving and we just walk away. We just leave it behind. And so when the Spirit of God confronts us, church, the Spirit of God wants to change us. The Spirit of God wants to free us, wants to release us from what 
holds us back. And so he wants to work in your life and in mine. And, and you know, as, as human beings, we are image bearers of God. We are made in the image of God. That's what makes every human life precious. But sin has marred that image of God in us. So, so the work of God is is to restore that image to us throughout our lifetime. That process is called sanctification. And so he's slowly rebuilding the character of Christ in us. And, and, and when God confronts us, he's transforming, he's working to accomplish that. That's what he's doing. And so the word of God goes out and wherever it goes out, it just transforms. It, that's, that's what it does. And, and again, you see this Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, we're going to talk about, he commands sickness. And I mean healing is the result. He calls the disciples and the disciples follow him. He uh, commanded the demons and they come out. He, he commands the wind and the waves and then all of a sudden the wind and waves are still and quiet. And so what happens is you, you begin to see the transformation as a result of the word of God coming through the living the living son of God, Jesus. And so, and so that is exactly what happens. Now, uh, Paul the apostle speaks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. He kind of unpacks this, the uh, kind of the sequencing of this. He says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice the sequencing there. The, the word of God is preached and it's received. And then, and then the word of God is accepted, which is kind of a little bit deeper than that. And it begins to take root. It begins to, it begins to do something in us. And what Paul says is it works in us as believers. The word of God works so as it's proclaimed, it's living and active and it takes root. It takes up uh, a place in us and it begins to do the work in us. And that work is transformation. That's what it is. Now, here's my question for all of you. And it's this. Are you growing as a Christian? Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your knowledge of God's word? Are you growing in your love for Jesus and your love for people? That's the most important question. What I know as a pastor is a lot of people in church are stalled in their walk with God. They're just stuck and they're not growing. They're just, they're stuck for various reasons. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're neglecting time in the word of God. Or we're neglecting fellowship with God's people. We're, we're not in community with, with other Christians to kind of, you know, help us grow in our faith. Or, you know, we're neglecting serving others or sharing the gospel. And the thing that I know, church, is this. You're, you're never going to drift towards the word of God. You're not just going to drift towards the word of God. You have to make a decision to say, I'm going to, I'm going to build my life on this. I'm going to apply it. And uh, by God's grace and help, I'm going to live it, live it out. And so that's what James is saying in James 1.22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it really starts with a, 
just a commitment in my heart and in your heart every day to say, you know what? The word of God is priority for me. It's what I'm going to live for. And, um, and that's how you begin to experience, you know, the transforming work of God's grace. You know, we have a, we have a longtime family friend uh, from Kentucky. Uh, her name is Stella Parks. And uh, she, has, she has authored a cookbook. And uh, the name of the cookbook is Braveheart. And uh, it's, a, it's a book about, you know, American desserts and that kind of thing. And, and uh, it is, it's a bestseller on Amazon. It's got five-star ratings. I'm not making anything off the book here, but, um, but it's, just a, it's just a great book. And so we have a copy at home because we know Stella really well. And, and uh, you look through it, and I mean, the, the pictures are amazing. The recipes are incredible. Uh, but can I make a confession to you guys? So um, I've never actually had one of the desserts from Braveheart. I've never experienced that. I've looked through the book. It looks amazing. Like, wow, these recipes look so delicious. But I've never experienced the authoritative power of her cookbook because I've never made one of those recipes. And uh, I think the principle is the same. Uh, we're not changed simply by just reading the word of God. We're changed when we are confronted and we do the word of God. We, we live out the word of God. So here's, here's the question, church. What if, what if you built your life on God's word? What if you did that? I think it would, I think it would completely transform your life in an amazing way. Now, I've got one minute left how to do this. How do you, how do you build your life on the word of God. Let me give you five ways, just real fast. You've taken notes. You can write these down. Uh, number one, receive God's word. Receive God's word. What I mean by that, we build our life on God's word with an open heart, with a hungry heart, with a heart that's soft and seeking. And so, and so, the word of God takes root in our hearts as we desire it, as we open up ourselves to it. And so that starts with receptivity to God's word. And um, anytime the word of God is opened, we need to be examining our heart. Am I open to this? God, speak to me. That could be a great prayer as you, as you receive and hear God's word. Lord, Lord, change my life. I want to hear you speak to me. I want you to do that. So, so you build your life on God's word by just simply receiving God's word. Secondly, you build your life on God's word by reading God's word. When you think about building your life on the authority of the truth of God, it starts with a commitment to read it every, every single day. Um, for, for most of church history, this is, this is incredible when you think about it, and we can't even imagine this, but for most of church history, only the priests had access to the Bible. I mean, it's only been the last maybe 400 years or so that, that normal people like us have, have access to the Bible. And so if you will just read it for 15 minutes a day, it will, you would see such a, such a benefit and such a change uh, in your life. And so one of the things that I know as a pastor is the number one factor in your spiritual growth, the number one factor is, are you reading it daily? 
if we as a staff and elder team, if we could, if we could wish one wish for our entire church, it would be for all of you to spend time in God's word just every day, just five, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is, because it will impact you that much. So receive God's word, read God's word. Number three, research God's word. And this is where you get a little bit of extra time. This is when you devote a little bit more time to just digging deeper into God's word. And, and so this is where you begin to just ask some questions and uh, you begin to just to, to kind of dig a little bit deeper and, and studying it and getting into it a little bit more slowly, a little bit more deliberately. I, I tried this a couple of years ago. I read Romans, all 16 chapters of Romans. I read it, the entire thing every day for 30 days. And I mean, it hits you in a different way. You begin to understand um, the content and the flow and it, and it has a huge impact. But you could do that this summer. You could, maybe, maybe you've got a little extra time this summer for, you know, for, for really researching God's word. But I would encourage you to do that. You wanna build your life on it then you need to expose yourself to it in, on a deeper level. Fourth, you want to receive God's word, read God's word, research God's word. And then fourth, you want to remember God's word. And this is where you begin to memorize it. And I know half the congregation, I just lost half the congregation because you'll say, well, I just, I just don't have a good memory. Well, I mean, we know our email addresses and our cell phones and we've got passcodes and passwords and you know, credit card numbers, stuff that we remember all the time. You remember what you want to remember. And so we need to, we need to remember the word of God. And when you, when you memorize it and it's a part of your life, you'll have it when you need it. You're taking it with you throughout the day. And so this could be part of your quiet time just to take a few minutes and work on, uh, on memorizing God's word. And then lastly, I would challenge you if you want to build your life on the truth of God to reflect on God's word. And what I mean by that is meditate on God's word. Meditate on scripture. Now, you know, meditation from an Eastern perspective is practiced so much in our culture today. The goal of Eastern meditation is to empty yourself of all of your thoughts. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. Biblical meditation is when you fill your mind with God's thoughts. You fill your mind with scripture. One of the scriptures that I've been meditating on a lot lately is found in Philippians chapter four. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. So I've just been thinking about that through parts of the day and just thinking about what are the implications of the Lord being near, the Lord being close? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of implications and uh, it will change your life as you just begin to just reflect on that one phrase, the Lord is near. Man, that would make a difficult day so much easier because you know that God is with you. Now, when you say yes to God's word, two things happen. You'll be set free and then Jesus will become famous. Let me, let me just close with this. Uh, Mark chapter one, uh, Mark closed it like this. He says, at once, and this was after the demon left the man, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And as we 
as we live out God's word, Jesus becomes more famous. Jesus becomes, he's glorified through us and how we live every day. And so I just wanna encourage you, the whole reason why Jesus came is to change your life and to destroy the works of the devil. And he did that by allowing himself to be destroyed for you on your behalf on the cross. That is the gospel. That is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we give you glory today. We thank you that your word is the greatest power in the universe. Your word is your deed. You speak and it happens. And so God, I pray that you would just renew us in your word. That you would renew our love for your word our devotion to your word. That we would come back to the truth of your word that says you loved us so much that you went to the cross for us. And so Lord, just, just fill us anew with the treasure of the word of God. That it brings peace, brings joy, brings freedom. And most of all, it brings glory to you. So God, help us to be people of one book, people who build their lives on the authority of your word of God. We love you today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.